0: I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Emily Jacobs. She is an Associate Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she studies how sex hormones influence the brain, particularly during the menstrual cycle and during menopause. Emily, welcome to the Nature & Nurture podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Was that
0: an accurate description of your research? Is it primarily in females only, or are you looking at hormones in males as well?
1: Yeah, no, we do males as well. Um, We study the effects of endocrine aging on the human brain, uh, and that includes males and females. So um, one of the biggest initiatives right now in my lab is um, thinking about the midlife period and the changes in the brain that happen really sort of early in the traditional aging process. And we have all genders and sexes. So, So
0: menopause is something that most people have heard of. You mentioned off camera andropause, which I guess is an androgen-based male equivalent. I've never heard of that before. Could could you explain?
1: Yeah, so endocrine aging is a phenomenon that happens in males and females. Um, and in humans, uh, the decline, So so endocrine aging meaning the decline in the production or secretion of sex hormones with age. In men, it's very protracted. So men will start to lose testosterone production beginning at about age thirty, and there's this sort of slow, steady decline that doesn't stop until death. Right? Um, you know, men are still uh, secreting testosterone um, forever, essentially. But you do see this sort of uh, protracted decline in production. So that refers to andropause. Menopause is something special in the sense that. It's also um, an overall decline in the production of sex steroid hormones, but it happens over a much more narrow uh, time window. And so we can start to disambiguate the effects of chronological aging from endocrine aging much easier in females than in males. Now there's all sorts of other ways. We could start looking at um, the role of hormones in the brain doing more direct interventional studies, but just looking at spontaneous decline it's hard in men to figure out what might be driven by the decline in um, in hormones versus just the ticking of the clock, just chronological age. But yeah, andropause is definitely a real phenomenon.
0: And you're at UCSB and there are a lot of evolutionary-minded thinkers there. Is Does that come into your research at all, thinking about like making predictions based on evolutionary theory or cross-species comparison based on at what rates or at what ages you would expect these hormone mm-hmm. changes to happen?
1: you know adam that is a great question and really uh i look forward to having much more conversations lita uh cosmetes who of course is sort of a pillar in this field um and i have had really fun cocktail discussions but we haven't yet put our heads together we we have brainstormed some ideas but we have not yet put our heads together in a formal sense so i would be really excited to go in that direction i'm more in the camp of i kind of grew out of Traditional cognitive neuroscientists um, in that pool, um, and kind of pulling in neuroendo into that piece. But yeah, there's a million directions we could go, and it's so fun to be at a place like UCSB that has just, you know, different lenses for thinking about phenomenon. Um, but no, that's that's one that um, we have not explored yet.
0: So the first line of your research bio is the brain is an endocrine organ which is absolutely true but in i didn't really learn that until i started doing hormones research myself like in traditional cognitive neuroscience i guess more of the focus is just on on these other non hormone based changes whether that's uh, like genetic or experience driven uh neuroplasticity type stuff much less focus on the brain as an endocrine organ
1: yeah i mean I, when I joined Mark Desposito's lab at Berkeley as a PhD student, when I was in your shoes, right, my first year, um, his lab was really interested in interested in dopamine, right, and how this major neuromodulator influences uh, cortical tissue and um, you know cognitive functions that are dependent on the prefrontal cortex. And this is a little bit of a backstory, but I, I will get around to answering your question. I came from Smith and had great neuroscience training, but didn't know a lick about dopamine or really neurochemistry in general. I had not taken any kind of super in-depth course. So I joined Mark's lab and my first act for the first six months was basically to lock myself in an office and just pull any paper that had the word dopamine in the title. And, you know, whether it was, like gene knockout studies or patient studies of Parkinson's, patients on off medications, like whatever. I didn't care. I just wanted to immerse myself in this literature. And it was during that period of time that I stumbled across this beautiful body of work by Jill Becker at University of Michigan. And she, this was work emanating from the 90s. And she had published just a series of beautiful studies, both in vitro and vivo. But the central takeaway was that Um, endogenous fluctuations in the sex steroid hormone estradiol, estradiol being the major form of estrogen in most mammals, that these endogenous fluctuations um, can can provoke or stimulate or potentiate dopamine release in the mammalian brain. She was working in rodents. Um, And I was like floored because that having, you know, just spent six months reading everything about the dopamine literature, heavily geared towards the human. I had never once come across the fact that hormones might tell us something about the organizational principles of the brain, or certainly, um, you know, this interaction between our endocrine system and the traditional neuromodulatory systems like dopamine. And that just opened me up into this whole world of uh, endocrinology and specifically neuroendo. you know, the formal study of which was really kind of launched in the 1960s, but We've known something basic about the endocrine system all the way back to the time of antiquity, right? We've used castration as a form of changing animals' behaviors. But really what I saw was this major conversational gap between what I'll say, the sort of traditional cognitive neuroscientist and those um, scholars who are working in the endocrinology space. Uh, And I think um, there was this amazing kind of merger of those two fields, at least at the animal level, in the 1990s, not just from Jill's work, but uh, also this woman, Catherine Woolley, who was, uh, what, column, I think she was, no, she's not at Columbia. Where was she? Uh, Johns Hopkins, I think at the time. And she published uh, one of my favorite research papers of all time. Uh, she was looking again in rodents and showing changes in hippocampal spine morphology. So these are CA1 pyramidal neurons, and you could see changes in um, dendritic spines Based on estrous cycle stage, these are cross-sectional studies. But we sh- what she shows is that during proestrus, which is the stage of the rodent estrous cycle when estrogen levels peak, that's coincident with this proliferation of spines. That was a turning point in the field because my understanding is that before that point, a lot of endocrinology was really focused on hormones' roles in overtly reproductive behaviors, right? Like lar- lordosis behavior in in rats, for example. And she really started to make this case that no, sex hormones are powerful neuromodulators that have effects in what we call extra hypothalamic sites, right? Not just the hypothalamus, but in hippocampus and later discovered in prefrontal cortex. So these are modulating cognitive functions. That happened way back in the 90s, and we can go get into that literature more if you want. But the human literature didn't really catch up for another 20 to 30 years. But we're now filling that gap.
0: So neurotransmitters and hormones are both really just chemicals in the body, right? And it seems like it's more of a context-based thing. Like we call something a neurotransmitter if it's primarily active in the brain and we call something a hormone if it's primarily active in the blood or other areas of the body. Is there any true categorical difference other than like where you find it? Cuz some some chemicals are both neurotransmitters and hormones, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's neurohormones, neurosteroids. So the brain has all the molecular machinery it needs to produce um, hormones. So one, there's a couple ways to think about the difference. Um, You know, one is just the distance in which these different uh, chemicals act. So with traditional neurotransmitters or neuromodulators, it's you know they might get packaged in vesicles and and diffuse you know exocytose into the, the um, synaptic space and then they'll diffuse across like a 20 to 30 nanometer synaptic cleft and then they bind to receptors that are like right there kind of primed um to receive it hormones are acting over much larger distances right like one to two meters they, they use their circulatory system as the superhighway, so they're going everywhere your blood goes and the magic becomes the distribution pattern of where those hormone receptors are expressed um, and but but they are also you know some hormones can be packaged in vesicles just like an neurotransmitter others like steroid hormones can't because they're lipophilic um, but i would say the major distinction is really just thinking about the specificity and the 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 uh, sort of uh, duration in which not duration but the, the um distance in which these uh chemicals are um, able to travel
0: what about pheromones is that the same thing but transmitted through air
1: yeah you know okay so here's the thing we are multicellular organisms um right and and any multicellular organism whether we're talking about like a sea slug all the way up multicellular organisms have to have a way for their cells to communicate and as you just mentioned, like neurotransmission is one form, um, you can have hormonal forms of communication. And then in some instances, right, you can actually have these um, uh, instances where um, there's secretion of of chemicals outside of the body so that there's a, sort of like organism to organism communication. And this is um, yeah, it's a cool, cool concept. And um, I don't know that literature too, too much, but it's certainly um, wild. To think about, like maybe, like where I end and you begin is is more blurred than we really think.
0: Going back to your PhD, you mentioned you're at Berkeley. You were reading everything there was to read about dopamine, and then you had this epiphany, realizing um, how how hormones are interacting with typical neuromodulators, and then your research from there transitioned in more of a neuroendocrine direction.
1: Yeah. So I. I, I stumbled on um, on this beautiful work of Jill Becker's linking um, this modulation of estradiol with this ability to potentiate dopamine release. And I was totally taken, because uh, as I mentioned, you know, there's just such little research from the human cognitive domain thinking about the role of hormones as these powerful neuromodulators of learning and memory. Um, there's also work at the time by Rebecca Shansky and Amy Arnston thinking about this notion of like the inverted U, so dopamine, Um, especially when it comes to thinking about like working memory, that there's sort of the sweet spot and too little dopamine or too much dopamine um, is associated with sort of poor working memory, but there's this kind of sweet spot. And they had shown some really elegant studies in which modulation of estradiol could kind of move the animal's uh, performance based on sort of how much um, estradiol-induced dopamine there was. I won't get into the weeds except to say that I basically took that a preclinical uh, finding and just translated it into humans to say, like, can we see the same thing across taxa? Uh, and sure enough, um, we did. I mean, it was, a, <laughs> it was in retrospect, a very risky thesis. Um, but we found this evidence of estradiol modulation of dopamine-dependent cognitive functions, and that really convinced me that this is probably a real phenomenon, that um, sure enough, these steroid hormones deserve much more attention than they have traditionally been given in Cogneuro. And so I just continued to kind of chase that thread.
0: When you say uh, modulation, does this mean that you're looking at natural endogenous hormone levels and then just somehow able to trace the function to the brain? Or are you doing something more like a uh, control trial where you have a placebo group and a drug group, and in the drug group, you administer hormones, and then you look for differences between groups.
1: Yeah, so we can gather the, you know, we can build this evidence from a lot of different methodological um, techniques. So that early study was looking at just endogenous changes within women. So this was a a study that followed women at two different points in their cycle under uh, low estradiol and high estradiol conditions and seeing sort of uh, differences in um, prefrontal cortical function. And there was another twist in there that had to do with genetics that I won't get into. Um, in the studies that we now run, we do pharmacological manipulation. So uh, here's a little neuroendo for, for I guess, the, the listeners. Um, your brain controls the production of gonadal hormones. And it does so through um, this hypothalamic pituitary gonadal or HPG axis. So a lot of people have heard of like the HPA stress axis. Well, there's a parallel axis for um, regulating the production of gonadal hormones, so testes in men and um, ovaries in in, uh, women. And So the hypothalamus has, um, about 1500 to 2000 neurons that really guide this, this axis. These are gonadotropin releasing hormones or GNRH neurons. And what's so cool is that, I don't know, maybe we'll get into the neurobiology of puberty and like how these neurons like come out of quiescent, but in reproductively aged animals, um, these neurons fire these classic kind of like pulsatile uh, release to stimulate that whole axis. So knowing that we can use drugs, we do use drugs that act on those 1,500 to 2,000 neurons to shut down the entire axis. Um, these are uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone agents. And we're running a study right now um, following women before uh uh drug use and then about three to six months into use of this drug and it is akin to if i can be a little bombastic but it's akin to chemical castration so women who go on this drug these are often 20 30 40 year old women will experience menopausal symptoms within a matter of days Um, and they have sex steroid hormone levels that are uh, indistinguishable from that of a, a postmenopausal woman. Um, So it is a form of pharmacologically induced menopause. And what we're doing is looking at the brain's response to that new endocrine condition. How does brain structure, function, cognition, how does this all change in response to? So that's one example. There's a lot of other ways we can um, think about um, tracking the relationship between endogenous modulation in hormones and the brain. And one of the most exciting studies that we wrapped um, was this project called 28 and me, and obviously a riff off of 23 and me, but one of the, and maybe you're sort of alluding to this, but, but you know, kind of one of my quarrels with traditional cognitive neuroscience research is that often you'll take, and this isn't just for endo-based studies, like any anything that you're interested in, and like you'll take a group of people in one condition and maybe you'll take a group of people in another condition and you average their brains. Like, let's say a classic aging study, right? Like you'll take young adults and older adults and you're kind of like average their brain and make some inference about the difference. That, thinking about how variation in hormones might affect variation in some aspect of the brain because a a central feature of the mammalian endocrine system is that hormone secretion varies over time, right? There's these sort of classic ebbs Mm -hmm. and flows of hormone production. And no doubt, it's the delta that matters a lot more than the relative concentration. So if you just take like a canonical menstrual cycle, you're going to see an eightfold increase in estradiol during around the ovulatory period, you're going to see an 80 fold increase in progesterone throughout much of the luteal phase. And those pulses, right, we like to say that those pulses are almost like a vital sign, like these are uh, rhythms that drive physiological functions, and yet we had almost no insight into how those rhythms might drive change or how the brain might respond to those changes, in part because we were sort of plucking people right at these like arbitrary points or these sort of singular points in the cycle as opposed to really capturing the entire rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so we started sort of, you know, this is a project led by a brilliant graduate student Laura Pritchett and a whole bunch of other um, amazing minds, we started kind of like chewing on this problem a little bit uh, in the, you know, uh, at lab meetings or sort of in the background. And then we sort of watch as a lot of groups, a lot of traditional cognitive neuroscience groups. You started to see this flip over the last five to ten years, which is this maybe five years, like this adoption of these highly dense sampling brain imaging studies. So this really sort of flipping the model of like instead of taking thirty people, scanning them once and averaging their brain, you take one person and you you know image them in in just incredible um, with c- incredible precision. So this is was really led by Russ Poldrack's my Connectome Project um, but also, you know, the midnight scan club. So it's this idea of precision imaging of small groups of people, but with, you know, over really unprecedented timescales. And that was when we had this epiphany of, oh, this is the perfect approach for, for, you know, our problem, which is trying to understand these rhythms of the brain. And so 28Me was designed to do just that, to understand how, um, the modulation of hormones, um, might drive or impact, uh, aspects of the brain.
0: Emily, do you know Katie Bottenhorn?
1: Yes. Uh... So she's
0: a postdoc in my old lab at USC with Megan Hurting. We we talked about this dense sampling approach. She was doing, I imagine, a similar study to, to what you're finding in 28 and me. So, and the part that blew my mind is that across the cycle, you're not just seeing changes in brain function or connectivity, but even structure is changing. And, and I tend to think as brain structure is this fixed thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah right i mean we're all conditioned to think that in fact if you crack open a textbook from even 20 years ago it'll say "Eh," like the human brain is basically done by age two right and then this whole wave of adolescent you know cognitive development yeah i should
0: add so my advisor doesn't get upset at me because we study adolescent brain development i mean (laughs) once i think of structurally an adult's brain then i I think of it as No, no
1: no But for sure, you were ahead of the curve in this sense, but most of the field 20 years ago, 30 years ago, used to think that like the brain was relatively fixed. And then, you know, folks like your formal advisor, I think of like, you know, Jay Geed's, um, you know, longitudinal study or Sarah Jane Blakemore, like these folks and and many, many others really can, you know, showed that adolescence, right? This period of time that's coincident with hormones coming online, is a period of incredible synaptic plasticity in the brain okay so that was fixed and by the way like anybody who's parented a child through puberty kind of knows that the brain must be changing <laughs> but but then after that it was kind of like okay well get adolescents out of the way and then it's really dumb the brain is fixed it's not changing couldn't be for further from the truth right the brain is like highly dynamic and that's what i love about these dense sampling studies um, is that we can see these changes over almost unprecedented timescales. So my postdoc, Caitlin Taylor, published a paper in our image a couple of years ago, taking this approach and, and looking at, so using high-resolution imaging of the hippocampus to look at um, hippocampal structure across the endogenous cycle, and then in response to pharmacological manipulation, where she selectively Um, suppresses progesterone by 97%. And sure enough, like the modulation that you see across an endogenous menstrual cycle is completely eradicated when you remove that hormone cycling. Um, And we've uh, kind of um, just moved into this space of thinking about pregnancy too. So there's beautiful work from um, groups in Europe. So um, Susanna Carmona, um, Elseline Hexama, um, Magdalena Martinez, um showing that pregnancy is again this period of just incredible and dynamic plasticity both in structure and in function um and we're applying some of those precision imaging lens uh right now to track how the brain responds to these just you know amazing um, you know changes is so if you think about the hormone changes that occur across the cycle That is but a blip on the radar of um, the magnitudes of changes that happen across the gestational window. And sure enough, the brain uh, is changing. These hormones are guiding, I think, right? What we're seeing is that the hormones are guiding the, the plasticity and structural remodeling, of the human brain over this time course, and it's doing so with good reason, right? You mentioned sort of what are the evolutionary functions of these hormonal signals. Well, here's the most obvious one when estrogen and progesterone levels surge across the 40-week period and then drop precipitously at delivery, we can track changes in, um, you know, default mode network, um, so really sort of across the brain. And no doubt these changes are part of what are guiding these behavioral changes that um, help the new parent um, parent for the first time. If you've ever had a dog who's given birth, um, you've witnessed this, right? So you might have had like the most docile kind creature. And then all of a sudden, if she gets pregnant, like a couple days before birth, she'll start to dig a nest. Right. This could be an unusual behavior for her. She'll start to dig a nest. She'll she'll deliver. And then if there's some kind of intruder, whether it's an animal she's seen before or somebody else, like she can show display signs of maternal aggression Right, for a previously completely docile animal. This is the role of hormones, right? Like it's it's really helping the animal, um, you know, caregive and respond to this new situation.
0: It's really interesting seeing those behavioral findings dovetail with the neurobiology that you're describing, because I was completely exposed to endocrinology research from psychology at first. So, you know, the classic findings of like testosterone being linked to aggression or oxytocin, the love hormone and all this stuff, but definitely missing the piece of the neurobiological why or what is actually happening here. Yeah. Now, now in your own research, when you're finding these structural or functional brain changes, is it always associated with some cognitive task, or is it like mapping out the basic what and then maybe why questions to be asked later?
1: Yeah, you know, if we kind of divvy this up into the ultimate versus proximate questions, right? Ultimate being the like why, and the proximate being the how. Where my lab is definitely more deeply, our center of gravity is more into the to the how to then help us move into the why. Um, So we do, there are situations in which we are really interested in potential cognitive changes, for example, across the menopausal window, we can see pretty consistent changes in aspects of verbal episodic memory. Um, So things like a list learning task or a face name associative memory tasks across different cohorts um, and pretty diverse cohorts. Like that's a pretty consistent finding, which is that these abilities show a modest but statistically significant and consistent decline from in postmenopause relative to pre and perimenopause. Um, which is to say that, that that's a pretty specific effect on uh, when we think about endocrine aging. Um, there's other domains like uh working memory that don't show consistent um changes or selective attention, but probably episodic memory or even aspects of spatial navigation. Um, appear to be changing over this period of time. Um, so yeah, we we explore those um, behavioral endpoints um, at times and then ask, what are the neurobiological mechanisms that lead to those? And other times we're just interested in like, how are hormones coming in and sculpting the brain? And then can that give us insight into what the adaptive functions of those changes might be?
0: There are these why questions for the neurobiological how that you're describing, and then there are sort of meta-why questions, you had a TED talk where you talk about um, Mm -hmm. kind of the history of neuroendocrine research and and sex and gender bias that happens there. Like historically, most research, especially animal research, was only focused on males. And then even when focused on females, maybe it's more centered on puberty and menstruation starting, but less so later in life and focusing on menopause and these age-related changes in endocrine function over the long term. Uh, could we introduce some of the history there, fill in those gaps?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so this is you know, literally my soapbox point, I guess you could say at this point, which is just this interesting question of why is it that women's health is arguably 20 years behind where it should be? And I think this is where you have to think about kind of the intersection between um you know the status of women in stem and the status of women's health research and i think those are concurrent phenomenon um you know as well as connected ones those are not just existing in parallel they're really kind of informing one another and what i mean by that is that you know if you if you sample uh, current tenured um professors in neuroscience you'll find that about 80 percent of them are men um just to, you know, to stave off any criticism. I'm not suggesting there should be less men. I'm just suggesting as this conversation continues that maybe there's a real argument that there should be more women, right? Um, I think that that uh, lack of representation impacts the nature of the questions that we ask. Uh, for example, um, you know, there is a sort of now classic finding from a group in Berkeley, uh, this is, uh, Annalise Beery, Arv Zucker, um, who kind of started talking to colleagues and noticed that, hey, is everybody else relying on male animals in preclinical research because we're kind of noticing this local pattern? And sure enough, so Annalise led this um, survey where she goes into 10 different fields and takes, um, you know, some number of the top journals in those fields, and just flips through the methods section and asks, what was the sex of the animal used in that research, um, you know, looking back um, historically. And overwhelmingly, she observes that these, this preclinical research, so in, in, um, in animals, is relying almost exclusively on male animals. And the biggest offenders uh, were neuroscience, immunology and pharmacology, right, arguably, like three fields that could have a tremendous impact on in, in human health. Um, so there's this so she can kind of quantify the sex bias in basic science. Um, and you might add, you know, I think this is a phenomenon that the public probably is not aware of, but it is true. And it's been true for 50 or more years. And here's the rub, that sex bias in basic science is impacting human health. And it's probably doing so in ways we don't even fully understand. Um, so, for example, we know that um, most of the drugs that are pulled from uh, the market by the FDA are done so because they have adverse effects in women. Presumably, these are effects that would have been, uh, you know, discovered had that early preclinical testing included both sexes. So that's one example of, um, you know, I think these biases that can happen, and I think it's interesting that, you know, here was this woman, Annalise, um who noticed this Uh, issue, and it, you know, got splattered across major news headlines, there was nature and science editorials, and it led to this kind of renaissance. So Janine Clayton, as the director of the Office of Research on Women's Health, um, really pushed hard for this SAB, sex as a biological variable um, policy change, setting the, you know, new standards for any NIH proposal. And I think it's not lost on me, and hopefully it's not lost on the audience that Here were two women in positions of power that noticed this bias and did something about it, and this bias had been going on for 50 years right. Uh, And we can look at other examples so in, in you know my field of cognitive neuroscience we're talking about a little bit earlier that you know, one of the major questions is trying to understand how the brain changes with age and. Like writ large, the vast majority of studies are focused on this model of thinking about. Enrolling men and women who are 65 years and older and comparing aspects of their like brain chemistry or brain anatomy or brain physiology to young adults, usually psych undergraduates, which is a whole other problem, <laughs> probably. So, but like, you know, that model of thinking about young versus, you know, 65 plus has told us a lot about how the brain changes, but it is missing this critical midlife window, which coincides with the menopausal transition. So, this is a period of like roughly 45 to 55 years, where likely the brain is undergoing these sort of striking changes. But most of cognitive neuroscience had just totally missed the boat. I want to be really clear here. I don't think this was done out of malice. I don't think men were like, let's not study these questions. The point is more subtle, right? It's that you cannot answer questions you don't see. And I think if you're a woman who's lived through menopause, you certainly see menopause. Or if you are a female scientist in the lab, you might say, hey, how come we're only using male animals? Um, so maybe that's the you know biggest argument for diversity in science, which is just broadening the the perspectives and then the nature of the questions that we can actually see and then study.
0: Missing that midlife window uh, centered around menopause does seem like a big oversight. And fortunately, we have researchers like yourself now addressing that gap Uh, to be charitable to the animal research using mostly males. My guess is that if you're doing like a pharmacological study, that it makes it more complicated when you have to control for different hormone levels. But then again, this is just me thinking out loud, not arguing we should only use males thinking that even if it's more complicated, if you're gonna give drugs to humans and who go through the same changes, you need to know what the changes are doing. Otherwise you get this woman's health gap, right?
1: That seems reasonable, but there's a fatal flaw in your argument. You said, I think that having to control for hormones might make it harder. That's an empirical question, right? So, So what you're implying, I think, is that females, because they have this estrous cycle? If we're talking about a rodent, they have this four to five day estrous cycle. They must be more variable, right? That's a that's an assumption that should be tested. And sure enough, um, when Annalise, this was a paper led by Brian Pendergast that came out just a couple years after their um, seminal uh, germinal um, original survey. They asked this question, so they pulled 10,000 different traits um, from these animal based studies. I'm talking cell signaling pathways all the way up to behavior. Doesn't matter. Whatever the dependent variable was, they grabbed it for any study in which they had reported um, sex that, that these data were collected in males and females. And what they were interested in is not looking at the mean difference, right? Like males are here, females are here, but the dispersion around the mean coefficient of variation variability. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between males and females across 10,000 different traits? What do you think they found?
0: I guess there's a lot less female variability than they expected.
1: No, it's more than that. It's more than that. There was not a single variable in which the females were more variable than the males. And flipping that, There were several like a dozen or more variables in which the males were the more variable of the sexes. So if you want to talk to me about getting rid of unwanted unexplainable variants, get rid of the males, because the females are the more stable of the sex. And this was importantly looking at female animals unstaged. So they were allowed to cycle naturally. So even taking into account the estrous cycle, females are less variable than males. So this is a great example of how convention gets passed on in science, and it's a danger, right? Like, we have these reasonable assumptions. And I would have guessed the same thing. But unless you empirically test those questions, it can lead to 50 years of science leaving one group behind for no good reason. Um, it's a big problem. And mm-hmm. you know, there's other arguments that scientists make and grumble about when it comes to sort of inclusion of both sexes talk about housing cost of per animal per cage per day we you know money's a solvable problem um but, but i mean this this myth of variability really has to be eradicated and for anybody listening in this space i just especially you know being there in cambridge um go look up Becca shansky because she's published some really important thought pieces on this really uh, arguing against the myth of this in fact she and um Oh, I'm blanking on her co-author's name, but she just had one in Nature Neuroscience um, last year, I want to say. Talking about this myth and talking about the fact that, you know, including women's health as this major sort of driver of the kinds of questions we ask is going to take a global shift in science culture because Mm -hmm. these sorts of myths are so deeply ingrained.
0: now that I'm taking a moment to think about this variability hypothesis, it's reminding me of some other evolutionary theory that goes in the other other direction that does in fact predict that males tend to have more variability. And maybe that has something to do with like more of a high risk, high reward strategy or like, you know, sperm is relatively cheap. Eggs are relatively costly and there's more investment, especially in mammals where you have to go through pregnancy and all this stuff. So then that could lead you to the opposite conclusion then like if we want more robust findings, why not go heavily in the female direction? And this could be related to another assumption that I have that maybe you can slash down. Uh, So when I'm thinking about brain development very early, like prenatally, there's this assumption that like the female brain and body is sort of the default human blank slate, and then it's androgens that viralize that, and it starts to take on more male characteristics. That's been of a background assumption for me in thinking about the effects of testosterone on early brain development do you think that i should work against that
1: (laughs) i think that's a strong and dominant and still in the textbooks theory so i'm not going to say that it's that testosterone and or androgens in general whether you're talking about malarian inhibitory hormone plus androgens you know guiding all aspects of sexual differentiation Those are clearly really important drivers. But I think as the science emerges, we now realize that there's all kinds of factors that are necessary for the sexual differentiation leading to the female direction too. That it's, sure, in very specific senses, in some cases, the mere absence of testosterone will lead to the production of like, you know, certain secondary sexual characteristics or sex organ production or whatever. But there's also real cases as the science emerges that you need specific facts. I'll I'll withhold judgment until the science catches up a little bit.
0: This brings up another interesting assumption and probably uh, a gap, a historical gap in the research, which is thinking about the role of estrogens on male development. And I, I assumed that it just wasn't that significant until I learned about complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, where you can have an XY genetically male fetus and it develops as female and because it the body can't process androgens or testosterone. And not only that, but I assume that then you would have something like an eternal girl, right? Because you don't have male hormones for male puberty, but nor do you have female hormones for female puberty. But in fact, these kids with CAIS end up going through pretty normal female puberty, except for not having periods because they don't have a uterus, but they do develop breasts and the fat re- redistribution around the hips and all of that. So then looking into that, I learned basically that males have enough estrogen to go through female puberty, I guess, if not inhibited from, uh, by testosterone. Is that a right interpretation of that?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Adam, that's exactly it. And CAS is a super interesting phenomenon because it's basically this you know, kind of genetic quirk where, as you say, these their, um, their bodies are producing testosterone in abundance, but they do not have functioning androgen receptors, right? You gotta have, you got the lock, you gotta have the key. So they don't undergo prototypical, you know, male. they're not shunted towards that sort of like prototypical male form of, of um, sexual differentiation and certainly don't undergo male typical puberty. And as a result, because they're producing these, uh, these testosterone,s all that testosterone ends up getting aromatized into seventeen beta estradiol, right? So uh, for those, you know, not in the endo space, these steroid hormones are highly related structurally. So they all um, originate from this sort of mothership of cholesterol. And then there's certain enzymatic pathways, these biosynthetic pathways that can lead to different hormones. And a lot of what we call hormones are actually pro hormones. So if you take progesterone, progesterone can act as in its form as progesterone, but it's also part of the biosynthetic pathway of other hormones that can act in, in those other forms. Here's the case with testosterone, right? Testosterone can act as testosterone, but it actually almost always acts after conversion into 17 beta estradiol. And that's what you can see on display in, in cases with CAIS. But testosterone gets aromatized into estradiol and then suddenly there's all this estradiol to guide uh, development in that sort of female prototypical pathway and that's what you see these women with cias they're xy chromosomally or so sort of genetically male but they totally identify as female they you know socially you know others would identify them as female and it's only that they lack um, yeah, they don't they don't menstruate and they lack some um, you know internal uh, those accessory organs. But uh, yeah, that's the power of um, you know I think thinking it, when you study sexual differentiation in the brain, it's um, it really helps you understand the power of these hormones.
0: Right. So before encountering this, I had a default assumption that I guess you kind of have this symmetry where. Females have like 10 times less testosterone than males on average, and I guess I assume that females have like 10 times more estrogen than males, and I guess that is true at peaks of the cycle, like during ovulation, but then at, at the more dormant stages, you you don't see as much sex difference, is that right?
1: Yeah, and you know, even if we think about postmenopause, um... You know, they're about equal, so a postmenopausal woman, the amount of uh, circulating estradiol that she has that's detectable in the serum, is about on par with that um, that you would observe observed in an age-matched male.
0: Do you see the same neuromodulation of estrogens in males?
1: That is a great question. Who fed that to you? Yes. <laughs> Um, so I mentioned, um, I can't remember if this is in our pre or in the actual interview, but, um, I think it was in the interview. We talked about mm-hmm. 28 and me and this study that's sort of densely sampling the female, um, densely sampling, um, a female over time to really understand how these, uh, ebbs and flows of hormones can drive changes in, um, in the brain, whether it's sort of structure or function And sure enough we see these sort of rapid uh changes coincident with these sort of ebbs and flows of hormones we you know i'm going to admit a bias here my lab cares a lot about women's brain health so a lot of our questions are oriented in that way but we didn't you know after the 28 me paper came out we were sort of left like ooh we don't want to give the wrong impression that females are uh, you know, the only ones that should be thinking about these ebbs and flows of hormones because that couldn't be for, further from the truth and while we know that like maybe the public. would take that that finding and think this contributes to this myth of greater variability or what have you, so we followed 28 and me up with uh, a paper that's just about to be submitted uh, called 28 and he and this time we took a densely sampled male so the same pre- sort of precision imaging um, approach but we're following a male over every 12 to 24 hours. Um, So a.m. to p.m. So looking at that kind of diurnal cycle, uh, as we know, there's peak production of testosterone and cortisol, and at least in our case, estradiol uh, in the male, and then that production drops anywhere between 40 to 60%, depending on the hormone, in the p.m. And so we did this super time-lock study where this uh, densely sampled male came in every day 7 am 7 pm and had morning fasting blood draw mri scan and then did it again in the evening and so that allows us to look at this sort of diurnal variation and sure enough um the magnitude of change so we see that testosterone and estradiol um those changes in production are associated with changes in the functional connectome um, so measures of coherence across kind of canonical brain networks And the magnitude of those changes are exactly on par with the magnitude of changes that we saw in the densely sampled woman. The only difference being that like, in the case of the woman, the accordion was sort of stretched out a little bit because we were looking at changes across, you know, the 30 day or 28 day cycle. And in the male, we were looking really sort of, you know, diurnally, but it just goes to show you that these steroid hormones are neuromodulators for both sexes in a really powerful way.
0: How about birth control?
1: Hmm. Yes. How about birth control? Okay. So birth control is um. Let's maybe we'll be even more specific. Hormonal contraception, right? So hormonal forms of um, contraception are drugs. Um, this can be patch, pill, IUD, um, that are taken for a variety of reasons. Uh, in the name is sort of one of them, which is to control um, conception. I will say that they're used for a lot of other reasons. Endometriosis, right, controlling the painful periods of that disorder. Um, Acne, all kinds of things. Um, Even in some cases, migraines. Um, Birth control is an interesting question. Hormonal contraceptives are an interesting question because we as neuroscientists know very little about their influence on the brain. Um, and I just, um, was part of a a report that came out a couple weeks ago now in, in nature neuroscience. It's a perspective piece. That's really kind of trying to, um, set the stage for how neuroscience might do more in this space, but also to not call alarm to the fact that even though we're advocating for more research, it's not to say that we should limit our access to these essential forms of medication. So just to be clear, mm-hmm. you know hormonal contraceptions are a critical medication, a critical uh, for a variety of outcomes. And in their capacity to um you know kind of uh, blunt hormone production, they're an interesting way of thinking about the role of hormones in the brain. And I think her- uh, neuroscience could do a lot more to improve our understanding.
0: In the far future, do you think, in the same way, um, you might do a regular checkup with your doctor, that you would be doing these regular brain scans and seeing how that's connecting to your hormones? And like, do do you see some sort of practical implication far down the line where everyone is more informed about like, neuroendo?
1: Sure, and I think it starts with um, physicians, right? Uh, so Johns Hopkins survey that came out a while ago says that 80%, that seems to be the magic number these days, but 80% of medical schools um, fail to include menopause in the basic curriculum. And for those that do, it's, it's mostly an elective. Uh, so if you need the bumper sticker, here it is women's bodies are not an elective. Um, we need to educate physicians about women's health, whether it's menopause, menstrual cycle, right? just neuroendo in general, um, and then allow that uh, knowledge to sort of trickle down to the general public. We also need more basic science research to inform what matters and what might not. And this is especially true for these questions about the birth control pill or hormonal contraception. like. You know, there was a study that made waves um, a while back. This is a Scovland et al. piece from Denmark linking. So they studied the entire female population of Denmark, which you could do when you have electronic medical records. And they link first use of hormonal contraception to subsequent uh, increased rate of major depressive disorder, um, whether that was like ICD 10 codes for depression or filling a prescription for major, for an antidepressant that, you know, it's not a perfect study, but there's, you know, offers some suggestion that these sort of major forms of hormonal modulation might impact the brain and thus mood or or behavior. Um, But neuroscience hasn't given us like lab based neuroscience studies really haven't given us the tools to understand who's at risk and who's not. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say, look for 90% of women out there. It's totally fine. Like go forth young lads and lasses, like take these things, it's fine. But maybe for 10% of women, be on extra alert. Um, And we could bake this into the medical system too. Like we could have providers who say, you know what? Uh, We're gonna have a three month check-in and I'm just gonna see like, are you feeling blue or are you good to go, right? Just have these sort of checks and balances so that we can eliminate um, suffering and whilst maintaining our access to these essential forms of medication, but let's understand um, potential side effects so that they can be mitigated. And maybe I'll just add one more point to that. I think, again, to reiterate, here's a drug that's used for a lot of different reasons. We need it on the market. But for, for individuals who take it purely for contraceptive purposes, maybe it's a ridiculous way of achieving that outcome because, and you know, we are essentially relying on 1960s science. So the pill was released in the United States in the 1960s and it's, a, it's basic mechanism of action has gone unchanged since then. Why? Okay. Here's my final closing thought. Cause I know we're reaching, you know, we're bumping up against the hour. The beauty of hormones is that they do not have targeted effects. They have, all encompassing organizing effects across an animal, whether it's organizational in the sense of, you know, they're sort of literally changing the body over time or activational, whatever way, like hormones are using your circulatory system as their superhighway. They're going everywhere your blood goes. They're getting all of these systems to work in synchrony. They can't have targeted effects. So, why would we use endocrine manipulation as the way, as the lever to pull for contraception? Because by definition, you might be affecting, you know, the possibility of, of implantation and, and controlling reproductive function, you are almost assuredly affecting all of the other receptors in your body that are responsive to these forms of modulation. I'm more excited by like pushing R&D in other directions. So let's think about Polina Lishko, who's working on um, a drug that alters a single protein in sperm doesn't affect the DNA and, you know, the sort of coding DNA, like just a single protein in sperm to make it swim a little less well. It is as effective as traditional birth, is uh, the pill in um, preventing contraception and it has zero side effects. Wow. Why not right, provide that to the market so that women don't have to choose between their brains and their uterus or between getting pregnant and having Severe side effects in some women, Some women let's acknowledge have no side effects and that's great, but like, why is it even a decision that we have to make when there's other potential pathways that we could invest more R and D in so that these questions become obsolete.
0: Thank you, Emily, for raising all of these important questions for slashing back against some unhealthy assumptions some of us might have had and for your (laughs) research. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Adam, thanks. This was really a lot of fun. And it's so cool to see uh, you bring uh, these different scientific topics and scientists to light. And as a first year grad student, my gosh, you are just, just killing it. And it's going to be so fun to watch your trajectory from here on out.
0: Thank you, Emily.